From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And today, Michael, will be talking with Selena Zito, who is the author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition That's Reshaping American Politics. And um, as as you and all our um, listeners know, uh, this book was on our uh, Democracy Summer Reading List, which was our uh, last episode from season one. And uh, um, I'm, there's still a few weeks left of summer, so everybody can uh, check that out if you haven't already. Selena's based in Pittsburgh, but traveled around the country for this book to interview voters in five swing states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Michigan. Uh, Trump endorsed this book. As did Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, and that's helped it uh, sell quite a few issues. It's yeah. been widely reviewed, so it's an interesting piece of work. Right. And so she's trying to understand what these people are all about, what they want, why they're supporting Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, I think a little bit, at least interesting to me, why is it that Donald Trump can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, as he himself says, and his supporters continue to support him? Yeah, it is. It is striking. And, um, and you see this kind of solidifying um, um, entrenchment, maybe even of support. But the one thing I wanted to mention is, you know, um, I, I came to Pennsylvania from Wisconsin. I know that state very well. And uh, she has three or four vignettes in which she describes parts of of Wisconsin where she went and visited people. And I have to say, um, I thought her descriptions um, were uh, rang very true to me. I thought I thought I mean, from what I know, the 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 um, places she talked about and the people she interviewed, um, they they seem very accurate to me. So. Yeah, she paints she paints a good mm-hmm, picture mm-hmm. and she does seem to be able to get people to open up to her. But there is less focus, I think it's fair to say, on the suburban people in um, outside um, Philadelphia, say, who are, you know, have voted Republican for decades. Right. But when you look at folks in um, in like Erie, Pennsylvania, who were, you know, kind of from this working class community, Kenosha, Wisconsin is another one, union towns, manufacturing towns, who suddenly just kind of uh, decided that um, they are done with this. They've had it and they feel misrepresented or un- unrepresented, disrespected, and they are going to move to Trump. And and so, you know, her argument is that these people are new, that they're um, that they've created this new po- uh, new coalition within American politics. And um, that is a big deal. And, and I think that in many ways, you, you know, what comes out in this book is really revealing this way, like the emphasis on trade, mm-hmm. which comes up from quite a few mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Uh, and the non-issue kind of uh, resonance, non-issue kinds of uh interests of them resonate as well, like this notion of authenticity, which, you know, that what they see in Trump is not so much what he says, but how he says it. That's important because it speaks to a sort of authenticity that they that they thought was missing. So it's not really a policy agenda, but it's it's a way of it's a way of governing. There's just no disputing, no disputing that uh, Donald Trump is a uh, unique political actor and that um, how he goes about campaign, how he went about campaigning, and how he goes about uh, governing, uh, um, shatters expectations regularly, and and so the the fact that he does that um, 
um, makes one part of the of the populace extremely angry and one part extremely happy. Probably a good time now to bring Jenna on and Selena on to talk a bit about this book, and uh, we'll come back and, and talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, that sounds good. Selena, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so your book is called The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. And you wrote that with Brad Todd. We decided after the election that we wanted to understand if this was a fluke or if this was a if Trump had election had caused a new coalition. And we decided that it is a new coalition. So we made the de- uh, Brad and I made the decision. I'm the one that went out. He's the one that's smart. I'm the one that can interview people. So I went to all of the five Great Lake Midwest states that voted Obama, Obama, Trump. So Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa. And I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. And I wanted to revisit what I saw emerging in 2016 is these different archetypes of surprising voters that were beyond the stereotype of, of sort of the, the sort of what the media narrative of who a Trump voter was, because it wasn't it wasn't that simple. It was complicated and it was interesting. And 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 so I went to 10 different counties, um, no airplanes. No uh, interstates, all back roads. So there was about, it says 27,000 in the book. It's actually about 37 miles. Uh, and um, interview people that, that in 10 counties in those states that voted Obama, Obama, Trump. Sure. And so um, how did you find those people? And I think maybe more importantly, how did you build the, the, the trust with them necessary to get them to open up to you and kind of tell you their stories? Well, this is one of the things where geography and upbringing sort of it plays into it, it plays into my advantage. So geographically, I don't live in Washington or New York. I live in the Paris of Appalachia. I live in Pittsburgh, and so um, it, it, and people from Pittsburgh will argue it's not the Midwest. It's the Midwest. People here behave in very much the way that people do in the Midwest. So with that kind of upbringing, you're sort of able to connect with people, I think, a little easier than sometimes when you live in a larger metropolitan area and everybody's sort of zoom, zoom, going past each other. So uh, and, and in my career, I've done multiple different things. So I'm able to connect with people in a, multiple different kinds of interests. So I like to bowl. I go to church. I like to go fishing. I love basketball, baseball, hot soccer. You know, and I belong to the Elks. So those things helped me be able to inter- introduce myself and just start talking to people, and 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 so that's how that's how I did it. Did you have anybody you know ask if you were part of the fake news or kind of get that that angle? Of oh, things? I think there's a lot of pushback, and here's the here's the shocking thing that people don't know yet because the Democrats aren't in power. Democratic voters feel the exact same way. They have the same sentiments about um, media. They have the, actually have the same sentiments about larger institutions. Uh, modern populism and, and is a healthy uh, uh, pushback to all things big. So not just government, not just media, but entertainment and sports and these sort of larger institutions uh, that have been acting as curators and making decisions before for us for a very long time, and there's a lot of that on the um, on the center left 
as well. We just don't see it as much because they're not the party in power. Have you talked with anyone since those those interviews for the book to kind of keep tabs on what they're yeah, thinking? Yeah, I, I hear from them all the time, and and I, inter- and I and I go back and forth with them either by phone or text or email. Uh, no one has changed their mind, <laughs> even the most. Uh, in fact, I have found that some of the people in the book, the book's broken down into seven different archetypes, and we tell the story of about three different people from of these five geographical areas of how, what their lives are like and how they got to this point. The ones that were the most reluctant are actually the ones that like him the most. No one in, in any of these archetypes that I interviewed for the book have, have, have sort of lost their support for him. Now, one of the things um, that I think that people miss about understanding you know, as as the president has a series of mishaps, and it seems to happen every week. Every week, you sort of turn on the television or the radio, and you hear, this is the most shocking thing ever. This is unprecedented. And, you know, he's not exactly eloquent with his words. He's not very <laughs> eloquent with his his tweets. He tends to be hyper, you know, a little bit hyper, hyperbole there. But over and over and over again, people say a sort of... Um, a uh, different variation of this. They say, look, all of our lives, we've had these politicians uh, that speak very eloquently. Uh, their messages are beautiful, uh, uh, but they don't really give us the results uh, of what's in their speeches or what are in their, their um, you know, statements. And, you know, and, the, and oftentimes these statements, they don't have a, like, we don't know anybody that talks that way, Right. And 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 it's probably been focus grouped and and you know thirteen different staffers have put punctuation on it or changed this word or that word, uh, but here's a guy who we don't always like everything he says maybe not even half the time, but we're actually getting results. So that's I think the moment where we're what we're in. I understand it. I think a lot of times my peers have a challenge with understanding that. Not because they're not intuitive or smart or anything like that. I think a lot of it has to do with geography. Right. And so you kind of straddle both worlds, right? You are out there, yes. you know, here in Pittsburgh. And I, I just mentioned we are recording this here in, in, in Pittsburgh today. And you are out talking with all these people in, in rural America. But you also go on CNN and are part of, you know, the, the media class yeah, on, right. on, on some I'm of part of the so, fake news. Yeah, right. So, so what, what is that like? Do you feel in some ways like you're an, an ambassador between the, the left and the right or between urban and rural or all these kind of divides that we have? I sometimes see my role is in helping people understand that people see things just because people see things or consume things or or read things differently than you doesn't make them your enemy. It's just they're, they're, they have a different life. And that, that's sort of always been the beauty of our country. Right now it's like the the problem in our country. We don't, you know, we don't, I often see people with coexist on their back of their car, and they're usually the people that c- cut me off. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we use it as a catchphrase, but we, we don't allow people to, to coexist. I run this class at Harvard. It's called the Main Street Project, in which I take students, IOP students, out and embed them in different parts of the country. And, uh, you know, they, I'm, I had them go to church. I had them, it took them to a gun range. 
and and they walked, you know, and did a bunch of other things too. Played bocce, um, you know, went to a, a, an opioid center, and they walked away and said, "Yeah, this this is good that we know this, that we understand that this, we feel this, because they're the next leaders in this country." I know that Fox News is mentioned a, a handful of times throughout the book, but did that did that come up at all in the in the course of your your interviews in terms of how much of an influence that might have had over how people felt about about the president or about just kind of their situations in general? Yeah. Um, so most so in terms of these voters, um, there's a cross section of what they watched on television. A lot of it is their local news. That's actually where they get their lo- their information. So if you're – so the other day, Monday, the day that the president was in Helsinki, I, um, I had just interviewed Steve Scalise, walked back to my car, turned, it, turned on the radio. I don't remember what station was on, but I heard whoever the anchor was say, this is the worst thing ever. This is terrible. This is awful. And whoever was on the panel, you know, reinforcing this, this is unprecedented. It's never happened. And when I'm on CNN, I'm a contributor. Uh, I'm probably the most boring person on CNN. Uh, I, I tell people, even though I understand why people voted for Trump, because they live in my beat, the area that I cover, I didn't vote for him. I don't vote in elections that I cover. Uh, but oftentimes I'm said, well, why don't you tell a vote, Trump voter to think this? I'm like, that's not my job. I'm a journalist. My job is to understand what's happening and where that is leading. And that's why I felt very impassionate about writing this book. I mean, The Great Revolt serves as you, it's not, it's not a book about Donald Trump. If you look at this populist movement, as a Mount Everest, we're pretty much at base camp. That means we have a long way to go before right. this is over. And ignoring it or making fun of it or categorizing it into this box that isn't that is neat and compact to use, you know, in an elevator pitch, but certainly not demonstrative of who these these voters are. One of the things we talk about a lot is kind of this separation between classical liberalism and and democracy they, yeah. they're kind of coming farther and farther apart and so on one side you have you have populism without those liberal institutions behind it or you have institutions that don't have any type of input from from the people right. um, do you do you have a sense of of kind of where things stand on on that spectrum or you know where from from your experiences or, or from where you sit? Well, I think the people view it as classical liberalism. I think that the institutions <laughs> view it the other way. I mean, we're in a really, like, so this is what happens when new coalitions are formed. It's just that, first of all, it's been a really long time since we've had new coalitions. In American politics, they're usually about 30 years. This one's been really long. This has been since the New Deal. Right, right. Since and and, and I would argue that the New Deal coalition of Democrats broke apart in 2012, not in 2008 when, when Barack Obama first ran because it was very inclusive. It was very aspirational. It included um, not only um, ascending um, uh, coalitions, but also, you know, the working white class. In 2012, that was it. It was done. It was over. It was multiculturalism. It was, um, you know, we're global citizens. And, and, and they, he changed the Democratic Party. And, and so what happened was you saw the working white class, they, some of them did vote for him. 
because they liked him personally. They didn't like, in fact, any everyone in my in, in the Great Revolt that voted for Trump, I mean, for Obama, still like him. They didn't like his policies, but they liked him personally. It's kind of the opposite with Trump, right. where they don't really like him personally, <laughs> but they love his policies. Sure. But but so when but, but 2012 when 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 Obama made that decision uh, to to have that th- that type of election when he decided to break apart the New Deal coalition, uh, you know that's when this really started to rapidly come together. It's just that people weren't paying attention to it. Uh, you know they were more focused on on the elite and the establishment in both parties in Washington and New York, as opposed to how the people uh, and sort of the interior of the country have been impacted by that realignment. Sure. And so, what what do those no new coalitions look like? Do you think the new coalition within the um, Republican Party has a lot of the old New Deal Democrats as part of it? Now, they weren't people that were alive during FDR, but they were people that are part of that, um, that, that mindset, that tradition, that, you know, in, income equality tradition. Um, so I believe that entitlement reform is not happening in this generation because that's sort of out the door. That's not going to happen. That, that sort of Paul Ryanism um, is, is that part of the Republican Party has been shoved away. No, it doesn't mean fiscal responsibility isn't in there. It doesn't mean that not big government isn't in there. But those kinds of, you know, the government can be a solution for things is part of this new coalition. You still have the suburban um, voters, but that's the interesting part of the Great Revolt. It depends on where your suburban voter. Right. So if you're in a suburban voter in one of those super zip codes, like uh, the six counties that's uh, surround Washington, D.C., which are six out of the 10 most wealthiest counties in this country, that suburban Republican voter may m- move towards the, the Democratic Party. We talk about a lot, and, and people who, who study democracy talk about a lot, is this kind of slide towards authoritarianism and viewing Trump in the, in the model of, of an autocrat or you know, something like that. Do, do the voters that, that, that you've talked with care about that at all? They don't see that. <laughs> yeah. they, they really don't. I mean, again, they look at the way he talks and some of the flipping things they, that he says. That's uh, sort of like uh, what was what we said. What I said in 2016: voters take him seriously, but not literally, and we in the press take him literally, and a lot of people in the press still do not take him seriously. Uh, so uh, nobody that voted for him believes that that's where he wants to take the country. Uh, do they think that he has like an ego that would not fit in the room we're in right now? Oh, hex, yeah. <laughs> but they don't, they, you know, and they all, people are smart. They understand that that would be very actually difficult to do in this country. It really would. The closest we've ever come to sort of like a king in this country would have been FDR. Uh, you know, I, I mean, think about that now. Four times you run, four times. That's right. kind of crazy. Right. I know that uh, some of the uh, critics of, of, of the book have, have said that um, they thought that you were too sympathetic to, to the, the people that, that, that you interviewed and maybe didn't kind of take them to task or, you know, call them out on things that they said that, that might not have been true or, you know, something like that. There are several people in the book who have minority children. And when I did bring up race, they were very, very upset about that because, first of all, uh, 
They voted for Obama twice. So uh, they don't like they don't understand why people would then turn around and say that you're a racist and and the way they conduct their lives. It, it is very it's incredibly insulting. You know, if if and when or I asked them all about it, but unless someone demonstrated that behavior, I included it. It never it never came up. Right. So so what is that that disconnect? Do you think why is is race so often painted as part of this Trump voter narrative if it doesn't seem to to be something that's that's a, a concern? I think that sometimes when you don't understand why someone makes a vote or the decision that they make in life. It's easier to throw a label on it and stop the conversation rather than actually listening to uh, something longer than an elevator pitch as to why uh, you've made the decisions that you have. We do that on both sides. I don't think that's very healthy. And so you've spent your career talking to people, right, and having these these conversations in an effort to, to, to try to get to know people, get underneath that surface level. Do you, you have advice for people who are not professional journalists but are interested in that kind of dialogue or, you know, getting getting that deeper level of understanding? Put your phone away. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take a selfie of you having a conversation with someone. Um, and... You know, I, I always say just challenge yourself. Go to something completely different than you would. Go to bingo. Go to a chess match. Go to a a, a rock concert, a rap concert, a, a country music concert, whatever, whatever the thing that you don't know. And and just step back and first be an observer and, and watch how people interact with each other. Watch how people are having fun. And and it gives you a better understanding of, of who who the people are before you make a snap judgment. Mm-hmm. I don't think s- snap judgments are only probably really good when you're in a really serious situation and you better either do something or you might fall off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that, that struck me about about the book from from a, a, a democracy perspective is just that the people that said that they came they voted for Donald Trump after not having voted for years the if, if not decades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They sort of come in and out of the electoral practice process every few years. They're like Haley's comment. Right. And so, I mean, that is, you know, regardless of, of, of how you feel about, about Trump as, as, as a candidate or as president, I think there's something to be said there for just the fact that he was able to engage people in wanting to exercise their kind of democratic rights or, right. you know. I remember going to a, um, a shale, an energy company down in Charleroi, Pennsylvania. And there was, uh, there was a, um, there was a voter registration there, and it was a nonpartisan group that came there, and they were just re- registering people to vote. And uh, there was a guy who was registering to vote. He was 60 years old. It was the first time he ever registered. And after he signed up, he just started, like, tear. I mean, this is like this big, burly guy, right? And I'm looking at him, and he's like, tear. I'm like, are you crying? <laughs> like, of course, you have no filter, right? I'm like, are you crying? He goes, Yeah. I am. This is actually really important to me. For the first time in my life, this is important to me. And, and um, you know, I would put him in that paroista um, category, people that weren't engaged. There, there were several people in the book that had never voted before at all. And it was astounding that they were that moved and motivated. Yeah. Do you, do you think they'll they'll vote again this, this coming oh, November? Oh, yeah. I've been talking to them. Yeah. yeah they, they can't wait to show up to vote. There was one guy in Youngstown, his name was Jeej. He did not make the book, 
Uh, but I, I talked to him uh, when I took my students to Youngstown, uh, the Harvard students to Youngstown. And I said, so you, you're going to show up for the midterms? He goes, I, I wish I could come to go tomorrow. I, I can't wait to vote again. So I thought that was kind of cool. Do you think that, that anybody that, that you talked to for the book would vote for a Democrat you know, in the future? Uh, what, what this, in the Democratic Party, as it exists right now, no. Now, if they made some fundamental changes, yes, but they don't feel welcome. It's not that, that's the thing about this coalition. It, it's impacting things outside the ballot box. Right. So that's how where this coalition to work in the frontier is outside the ballot box. Well, um, I think we're going to bring things to to a close here. Um, so the the McCourtney Institute, we do our own poll. We call it the the uh, Mood of the Nation poll, and it's an open ended public opinion poll. So I have four questions for you. Okay. This will be kind of a, a lightning round. So thinking specifically about American politics, um, what makes you angry? Uh, just when, when we make fun of each other, that really uh, on both sides, that really upsets me. It, it, it takes a lot to make me angry, but that 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 can get my blood to boil. And um, what makes you proud? Oh, this is a great country. We're very aspirational. People people miss that. People all the one thing that's amazing about this country is people always want to be part of something bigger than themselves. That they identify themselves as that as being uniquely American. Yeah, that that kind of sense sense that sense of exceptionalism yeah. for sure. Um, and then um, what what makes you worry? Uh, I'm going to have to go back to the first question. We we need to respect each other more. Uh, you know, and 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 I I think one of the things missing in our country is a, a lack of uh, belonging to little civic groups like Elks or Freemasons or Rotary Clubs or things like that. Those are the kinds of groups that would, you know, build a school playground yeah. or or um, you know, uh, or do something at the senior center or whatever. You know, do do these little things in the communities. None of them ever involved politics. I'm an elk. I have no idea what my fellow elks um, political persuasion. Right. We just do things to make our community better. Yeah. I think we need more of that. And then finally, uh, what gives you hope? Uh, I'm going to have to go back to the American people. They really do. It's a great It's a great country. I've been to 49 out of the 50 states. The only one wasn't a, a Hawaii. It's because I can't drive there. Uh, but, you know, I just drove from Savannah to Pittsburgh only using an old U.S. route. It took me 15 hours. There was nothing more hopeful that I saw in all those little communities along the way is this country. People helping each other. I went to a watermelon day parade, which was awesome. A barbecue. I just stopped. There was a church having a choir. Just stopped. This is a great country. We um, we need to step back and, and go out. Actually, we need to lean in and go visit mm-hmm. it and enjoy it. Selena, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that was uh, that was really, really interesting. And uh, she's a very open and, and honest person. It actually kind of, Michael, reminded me of this uh, German term, um, Grenzebazon, which literally means border person. And, uh, and someone who's a Grenzebazon is somebody who sees their job as kind of explaining one side to the other. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. There always has been an, a, an important strand of populism in American politics. Uh, and the Trump campaign is notable for the way that it was able to uh, mobilize right. uh, this populism into a winning presidential 
coalition. Uh, and I, I think that it's a populism that we saw in the Sanders campaign, mm-hmm. uh, m- much as we saw in the Trump campaign, right. but with some very different and, and I think important and meaningful twist, twist to it. Uh, but it, 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 she does raise the issue about whether or not this is what we're going to see in American politics going forward, right. like that, that the Republican Party is going to become a populist party. And this is a really interesting and important question right now, because on the one hand, Donald Trump does have remarkable control over this over oh, the Republican I, Party. And as we're in the midst of primary season right now, we've seen it again and again. No, there's no doubt about that. And I, for one, um, did not see that coming. Yeah, so. that, that, that sort of electoral strength within mm-hmm. within the party. Uh, now, maybe if the Democrats have a big victory in 2018, which seems possible, that a lot of the wind will go out of, will go out of that sail. I don't, I'm not... Wait. We're not if the Democrats, win. if the Democrats have a big win, a lot of the wind will go out of this Republican, out of this Trump sale. Yeah, it might. That, that it might, has. or they may just, you know, the Republicans just decide that they've hitched their wagon to the star, and there's no going turning right. Around but but whichever, but whichever way this goes, in terms of Donald Trump's political power going forward, you know, this populism is real, yes. and and it's real because it speaks to continuing problems mm-hmm. uh, in, in within the entire Western world, right. including the United States, aggravated by uh, increasing inequality. Yeah. And that there are communities in distress. Yes. Uh, from economic sources beyond their control, uh, from drugs beyond their right. control. And uh, also from, um, let's face it, uh, there is a cultural um, shift going on. And for folks who had um, expectations about the way their life was going to go, not just economically, but also in terms of just uh, mores and and patterns of behavior and expectations, all of those are likewise being assaulted. And and so all of that is um, part of this this overwhelming sense of I am unhappy and I'm disrespected. Well, and and the sense of cultural loss as well. Right. Right. That I mean, she she emphasizes multiple times, and I think it's important that the like like the cities are are some sort of foreign foreign territory. Mm-hmm. You know, and she talks about how you know these people they really go to the city, you know, because they want to see the Statue of Liberty and catch a Broadway show. But but the sense. That, you know, we can't really trust what's coming from reporters who are mm-hmm. coming out of the cities and we can't trust the media that's coming out of the cities. I do think this the, and that the cities symbolize or they or they uh, yeah, they, they they symbolize a sort of multiculturalism, a sort of acceptance, a sort of uh, moving forward culturally and socially that many of these people feel left behind. Well, and they, and they have no interest in doing it. And they have no interest right? in doing it. Right, right. And they see it as coming from their, as, they see it coming at their expense. Well, and um, that um, there is an inherent um, um, dismissal, uh, disrepute that the uh, city holds with right. respect to their choices. Yeah, I, I wish she had dug more into that mm-hmm. with them, but but she does, in a way, really articulate it through mm-hmm. her own mm-hmm. comments. Right. I think about 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 the cities and about right. people from them. I mean, she has certain caricatures of, of that that uh, clearly enter into what she was doing. Yeah, and and so um, you know, her book is an extremely important effort to understand 
this political moment in which we find ourselves in, yeah, in yeah. our I political mean, when history. You, when you think about the books that we reviewed in that last episode, you know, multiple, several of them talk about the sort of populist uprising throughout the Western world. And, and what she's doing is moving that from sort of this macro look at politics to, uh, you know, well, who are these people and what is it that they're thinking about that's important? Um, and, and that's really valuable. Yeah, I, I think so, too. So thanks for joining us today. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. Uh, we want to uh, give a special thanks to WESA in Pittsburgh for lending us their studio to record the interview with Selena. Yeah, that was uh, um, very generous of them. So uh, we want to encourage you to visit our website, uh, www.democracyworkspodcast.com. Uh, you can find more information about uh, Selena and her book, The Great Revolt. Uh, the website also has information on how to contact us. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. We, we take it seriously. We have set up interviews because of what we've heard from, uh, from our listeners. So please get in contact with us. And finally, if you like what you've heard today, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.